In His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and looking at this marvelous passage with our access to the uh, heavenly places in Christ, verses 19 through 25, and then the warning that comes in verses 26 through 31. We understand to whom much is given shall much be required. And we have been given much. We have been given infinitely much more than any Old Testament priesthood could even imagine. The access that we have, the privilege that we have to stand before the glory of God is almost unfathomable. And yet this is what we have been provided in the church age in Christ. And so the warning that follows is severe. Now Hebrews has five warning passages. We've covered three of them. This is the fourth warning passage. The fifth one we'll be handling when we get to it. But uh, as we deal with it, we recognize that none of these are warnings that are threats to take away your eternal life. All right? So if if you think that Hebrews tells you that, just relax. Uh, None of the warning passages are threats to revoke your salvation. The Bible teaches eternal security. We preach eternal security. Hebrews preaches eternal security. The warning is losing our priestly access. The warning is to stop functioning as believer priests in Melchizedek, in Christ, in the church age, and to lose our privilege of standing within the veil, to lose our privilege of standing before that throne of grace is is horrendous. The idea of not just being out of fellowship, not just being carnal, walking in darkness. That's a sin issue. That can be remedied with confession of sin. You can be restored to fellowship. You can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. But to be reinstated in full priestly function with the the intense prayer ministry that we have in our priestly ministry. That's what the book of Hebrews drives at. And what it warns us that what we throw away again and again and again when we stop functioning in our Melchizedek priesthood. So hopefully this has been a blessing uh, as we've worked our way through these chapters and will continue to be a blessing as we look at this fourth warning here this morning. Before we do begin, though, it's important that we are in fellowship, that we are prepared to handle spiritual truth. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's uh, prepare our hearts for eternal truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. Not one of us deserves to be here. But your Son, the one in whom we stand, He has given us His righteousness, Father. You look at us, you don't see the sinner, you see your Son. We have His righteousness imputed to our account because our sins were imputed to His account. We thank You that He took our place on the cross. We thank You that by His work, we are made righteous. And now we can stand in Your presence. We can do so boldly. We can do so with confidence by the new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, we thank You for Your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us the ears to hear. We thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we look at this warning, we recognize that when they failed, there was swift and immediate judgment without mercy. It says in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And it doesn't take much. You can open almost any chapter of Mosaic law. You can open up Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You can find death almost everywhere where there's a command and then the consequences if they violate the Sabbath or if they, especially if the Levitical priests bring strange fire or they fail to follow the appropriate procedures, the consequences again and again and again is death. And that's the, uh, the application of divine justice in Mosaic law for uh, the uh, theocracy that was Old Testament Israel. And so on the mercy, without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, that was their punishment. And we understand that. Now, if you're thinking that, oh, well, we've got it made because they were under law and we're under grace. And so we're here on easy street, things are easy and great here. Stop that, all right? Because it's backwards. 
our accountability is more severe, infinitely more severe. And so it says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? This is us now in verse 29, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. So yes, we are under grace, not law, but our accountability is more severe. Our judgment is more severe. Because to whom much is given shall much be required. The one they entrusted much, all the more will be expected. We have requirements and expectations in grace that are far greater than anything Israel was ever given under law. And I think when we teach this, when, we, when we're clear on this, it benefits everybody so that we understand this, that we don't pervert grace. We don't turn grace into licentiousness. We don't think that being saved and being believers in the church age means that, that anything goes and it's okay. We can commit all the sins we want left and right and we still get to go to heaven when we die. Eternal security is not a license to sin. It is a... It is a tremendous goad for our diligence. This warning is a goad for our diligence. And as we saw in the previous paragraph, we are all supposed to be goading one another constantly. We are, we are constantly poking and goading and, and, and considering how to stimulate one another. As it says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds because grace is far more severe than law as far as motivating our diligence is concerned. And so last week we were looking at these, I'll get my slideshow up to date here. We were looking at verse 28, we were looking at verse 29, the question about how much more severe, like infinitely more. When you look at Luke 12, 48, that's the verse that says, to whom much is given shall much be required. That, that verse right there answers this rhetorical question. How much severe? How much more severe? Well, how much more have we been given? It's hard to measure the, uh, the distance between law and grace, between Old Testament and New Testament, between shadow ritual and substance reality. All that animal ritual was simply shadow doctrine. The substance belongs to Christ. We function in the substance and the reality. And so how much more have we been given and entrusted? Romans 3.2 says we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God. We've been entrusted with the Hebrew canon and the Greek canon. So we've been given that much more. Likewise, 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment begins with a household of God. It starts with us. We are the royal family of God and we have a responsibility to be diligent. Now, one benefit though, one thing we can rest in is the fact that we have the uh, juxtaposition of deserve with grace. All right? You know what a juxtaposition is? A juxtaposition is we have this hand and this hand on the other hand and we say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, you just threatened me with a what will he deserve? But then we have the reference to grace, having insulted the spirit of grace. And so that's a juxtaposition that actually to me is like a lifeline. It's like an inflatable floaty uh, life ring that gets thrown out to save a, a drowning person, right? That when, when it's threatening me with this phrase, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? I can stop right there and say, wait a minute. My, my salvation is not about what I've earned or deserved. My salvation is about the grace of God and the Redeemer and what he did on my behalf. And so I, I like the fact that the, the word grace is what ends verse 29 because I think that brings our thinking back to this recognition that yes, God's wrath does get to me. I do deserve divine discipline when I'm carnal. I do deserve to be under his hand of judgment when he's disciplining me to bring me back to the, to the priesthood, to bring me back to the light. Uh, and yet even when I'm getting what I deserve, his mercy is giving me less than what I deserve, that he's very gracious and merciful even in the discipline. Even in the discipline, we're getting less than we deserve because his discipline is suitable for our repentance. It's suitable for our, the lessons learned. And uh, when we've learned the lesson, he doesn't keep punishing. He's not punitive in uh, you know, grinding it in. Once we've repented, the discipline is complete and we're restored back to, uh, to blessing in that consideration.
I do like, uh, I mean, the language though is vivid. We're supposed to be drawing near. We're supposed to be holding fast. We're supposed to be considering. Remember that? Remember the three lettuce, lettuce, lettuce that we talked about in uh, when we have confidence to enter the blood of uh, the, the holy place and we have a great high priest over the house of God? There are three lettuce imperatives. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And so those three imperatives, that's what we should be all about. And we, maybe we had to paint a sign on the door walking in, let us, let us, let us. We should be drawing near, holding fast, and stimulating one another to love and good deeds. And instead of that, uh, walking in darkness along this route, when we are willfully defiant to the plan of God, trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant, and insulting the Spirit of grace. Three... Uh, verbs that are shown in contrast there if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. For believers that have been equipped with this doctrine, we are accountable and we have to be obedient to what He expects of us. Otherwise we're trampling on the Lord and regarding His blood as unclean. There's a passage in Isaiah that echoes this idea as well. Isaiah chapter 1 when uh, the prophet was rebuking Israel in Jerusalem, he called them Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, you're trampling my courts. And they were very, very religious. They were bringing sacrifices, but they were trampling his courts. And so I would encourage you to, uh, this is all reviewed from last week, but take, uh, take Isaiah 1 and, and put that in a connection with Hebrews 10. I think you'll see the very clear parallel there. Trampling of God's courts, just like we trample the Son of God. Infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. Now, verse 30 as if verse 29 wasn't bad enough, as if verse 29 didn't spell it all out, that it's severe, that we're trampling the Son of God, that we are regarding His blood as unclean. Then it says, for we know Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And so we have two, old, uh, two significant Old Testament realities Two significant Old Testament realities. This text is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 and verse 36 in the two parts of this. And these are now applied to New Testament believers with the greatest severity. In Deuteronomy 32, you might recall, um, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The Exodus generation, everyone 20 and older, will not be allowed to enter the land. They're going to perish in the wilderness. And then their children, they're the generation that enters into the land. And before they enter into the land, they're given the law. And uh, they have their parents' example to learn from. And the recognition that if a generation is faithless, God will deal with that generation. But Moses uh, composes a... a, uh, Moses composes a... uh, his toeses are no roses. All right. Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. He writes a song in uh, this chapter. He says in verse 34, Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. Now this is, this is the God who sent plagues to Egypt. This is the God who redeemed His people. This is the God who administered justice upon a redeemed people when He did not allow them to enter into the land. And so now their children need to learn that lesson and they need to learn it now because Joshua is going to lead them into the conquest. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. So there's a lot more to verse 35 that's not being adapted within the context of Hebrews 10. There's a lot more there that applies to the Exodus and to the conquest generation that's not being adapted for our purposes this morning. But that first phrase is, the vengeance is mine. Then verse 36, for the Lord will judge His people, the Lord will vindicate His people, the Lord will justify His people, and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. 
And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? You know, when, you, when, when Yahweh is rebuking that Exodus generation, remember, they crossed through the Red Sea and then they built a golden calf for themselves and said, here, this is the God that rescued us. Wait a minute. <laughs> the God who redeemed them is watching them unfold that, that idolatry right before him while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. All right. So we have snippets. We have portions of Deuteronomy now. A part of verse 34, a part, I'm sorry, 35, a part of verse 36. Portions of these verses are now being quoted. They're being cited by the author of Hebrews and they're being brought to application for us today, for church age believers today, New Testament believers today. And they're being applied with the greatest severity. Again, it's in context with what we saw last week, how much severer punishment. If they were held to that standard, what are we being held to? And why is it that we are, uh, are so uh, sloppy with the God who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay? Why are we not more fearful than we are? Why are we not fearful enough? Because vengeance is mine, I will repay. And um, the Lord will judge His people. Our accountability is undeniable and it is severe. And it's applied to New Testament believers with the greatest severity. And I think we can glean this as well. Romans 9, 1 Peter 2. I think there's other contexts in which other passages in the New Testament whereby we are instructed easily in how to adapt Old Testament doctrine for New Testament application. And, uh, and this is useful because we don't throw away our Old Testaments just because we're church-age saints. We are blessed by the Old Testament. We're benefited by the Old Testament. But we can't abuse the Old Testament. We have to adapt it for our application. We don't want to abuse it by, uh, you know, the law is good if, if you use it lawfully. We don't want to abuse law in terms of legalism. We don't want to abuse law in terms of replacement theology. We don't want to deny the promises of Israel that are still Israel's promises. We don't want to abscond with things that are not ours. But we do want to learn from the principles that are handed down, the principles that are unchanging and timeless. So we have another example of this as well in in Romans 9. And another adaptation. This one comes from Hosea. And so in Romans 9, when Paul is making the point that Israel is not over, Remember Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is the segment of Romans whereby he's making very clear that the church is not replacing Israel, that Israel still has a future. And so in uh, discussing the uh, wrath that they're presently under, then he talks about the blessings we receive. And so uh, this is what happens here. So talking about us, verse 23 he uh, did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. What a glory that we have in the church age. What a glory that we have. We're learning about it in Colossians first hour. We're going to have that coming up in our Colossians series. The mystery doctrine whereby Jew and Gentile are one body in Christ. And the glories of our current status as church age believer priests. And so this is what Paul's addressing here. And then when he quotes Hosea, notice what he's doing here. He's adapting an Old Testament reality for our understanding. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. This is such a glorious promise. And the prophecy of Hosea has future fulfillment for Israel, literally. But in the meantime, while there's a partial hardening of Israel, while the Jews and the program there is on hold, in the meantime there is now a secondary application that we can see for us in the church. And both fulfillments are true. 
the original promise is true for Israel, but the present meantime application is true for us today. And so we can read these Hosea promises and we can see the adaptation of them for us today because we did not used to be the people of God. And, and you know, when it comes right down to it, what, what's the United States of America? We're a Gentile nation. We have no eternal promises in any scripture anywhere. Israel has eternal promises in the Old and New Testament alike. We are the body of Christ by faith in Christ. We're born again uh, as by grace through faith. This is our good pleasure. We are now a heavenly people. Isn't that glorious? Heavenly citizens, whether we're white or black or whatever color or whatever ethnicity or whatever national background, none of that makes a difference because we're all one body in Christ. That's why biblical believers can't possibly have any racism, sexism, any kind of other class insanity. Because when you're no longer in Adam, you're now one body in Christ. And we have such a, such a privilege there. So there's an adaptation. Likewise in 1 Peter 2.10, another uh, text that I think uh, is useful to show us how to adapt the Old Testament to our New Testament application. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This can't happen with a physical birth. <laughs> with a physical birth, you're, you're, the, you know, you're the race of your parents, or uh, you're a combination if they're different, but it's, you're, you're, you're what you're born with in physical birth. In our spiritual birth, we become a heavenly people in Christ and He chooses us to place us in this circumstance. We come out of darkness, we get placed in light, now we can testify, we can proclaim to His excellencies. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so this is the adaptation. Again, it's the Hosea prophecy that's now being adapted for our application. And what we want to do with this, of course, is recognize how it's not being stolen, not being fulfilled, not replacing, but adapting their prophecy for our application that still leaves their fulfillment yet future, right? And so this way we see, okay, we are the people of God. We are now, we are the people of God. We are the heavenly people of God that does not deny that they are the earthly people of God and always have been and always will be. That Israel is the people of God, the church is the people of God, but we're different people, right? They're an earthly people in the midst of all the Gentile nations. We are a heavenly people that is neither Jew nor Gentile. And so the principles, judgment begins with the house of God, that's true. With an Old Testament application for them in their house and for the New Testament application for us in our house. Because we're a different people. We're a different house. And if we keep them distinct, we do ourselves so many favors. If we blend them, if we model them, if we, if we conflate them together, we actually open the door to some horrendous confusion. I believe some blasphemous uh, maladjusted doctrine. We turn God into a liar because He made promises to people and He doesn't keep them with those people. He changes the people He promises them to. All right? As I've said many times, uh, I made promises to Sharon Schneider on the day she became Sharon Bolander. I stood before God and man alike and I married that woman and I made promises to her. And uh, it's not going to fly if I fail to fulfill those promises to her and then try to claim, oh, well, I'm keeping them just with this other woman. That's not fulfillment of a promise. You fulfill the promise with the woman you made the promise to. And Yahweh made promises to Israel and He will fulfill every one. He cannot break a single one. Else He's not the God who can save us. And I think we understand that. 
And so we are adapting them. We are adapting vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We're adapting that. And if it was severe for the Exodus generation and the uh, conquest generation, how much more severe is it for us in the church? When the God who saved us, when the God who sent his son to die for us is the God who says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And the God who says, judgment begins with the house of God, or the Lord will judge his people, as is the case here. Then we have this expression, our severity is worse because we know him. To me, the toughest words of verse 30 are, we know him. We know him. Our judgment is worse because our intimacy is greater. The bride of Christ has the greatest knowledge of God, far greater than Israel ever had. And Israel had a knowledge of God greater than any Gentile nation ever had. But we know him. We know him. And I think it's curious to me, and we've got these passages we've looked at in the past. Let's look at these together. John 14. We know him. And uh, the more we know him, the more we, uh, the better we can serve him, the better we understand what pleases him, the better we understand what displeases him when we are set for judgment. John 14, 7. And this is uh, one of my favorite rapture passages too, by the way. I go to prepare a place for you. When I come again, I will receive you to myself. So this is a promise of the coming regathering and taking us to heaven where he's been preparing these dwelling places. And... um, he says, in ver- he says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Now this is a counterfactual. Not true in the Old Testament. Not true under the Hebrew Scripture revelation. Not true even in the incarnation, although it should have been. But it will be true in the church age with the Greek canon, with the New Testament Scriptures. From now on, you know Him and have seen him. We have a, an intimacy with God the Father by our position in Christ. We see him. We see the Son. We are in the Son. We are in the Father. We have this intimacy here. Down to verse 17 of the same chapter. He says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The church age is an age of increased intimacy. We have a knowledge, a knowledge of the Son, a knowledge of the Father, an intimacy with the Father and with the Son. We know him. Our severity is worse because we know him. We know him who has said... Now, it's the same God who said, vengeance is mine, but they didn't know him like we know him. They didn't know him like we know him. Big difference. 2 Corinthians 5.11 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. All right? This is our accountability. Knowing God leaving us so accountable. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Knowing Him. Uh, Philippians 3.10. Philippians 3.10. We just wrapped up a Philippian series. This should be familiar to us. You spend two years in a book study, you probably ought to know the things that are in that book. Like um, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And, and how about counting all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Him, being found in Him. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him 
and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Here we are in the church age with a a, a tremendous um, blessing, the privilege of access, the privilege of knowing Him, the fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And with that comes the uh, severity of the of the discipline. When uh, when the discipline comes, and we know it's coming because we know our Father, <laughs> you know, uh, the the classic threat of just wait till your father comes home. I heard that. I don't know how many times, and uh, and I knew I didn't even mom didn't even have to say it. I knew, I knew it was happening. And uh, then there was a fateful day that, and it was always bad. Uh, and but then there was a fateful day when my father, uh, when it was extra bad, and my father asked me. He said, "All right, now." He said, uh, "You're going to be a father someday. What do you think this merits? What do you think this deserves?" And it was almost a name your own punishment kind of a test, right? It was a, I knew it was a trap. I, I could, I saw clearly it was a trap. I'm thinking, he's, he's telling me I can name my punishment? And so the wheels start going. And you don't want to make it too easy because he'll see right through that and then he'll double it and make it horrible. But you don't want to make it too hard either. I mean, why are you inviting that when, when you don't have to? So why do you want to pile it deeper than it has to be? So Anyway, the wheels are going. <laughs> All right. But now, but you know, when you know your Father, when you know what pleases Him, when you know what displeases Him, when you know what violates His standards, when the standard of His household has been broken, and you try to weasel out of it to say, oh, well, you know, Billy so-and-so, his dad lets him stop right there. Because he's not Billy so-and-so's father. He's your father, and you bear his name. You represent his name in the community. And so if Billy so-and-so wants to drag the so-and-so name through the mud, that's so-and-so's business, and Mr. So-and-so, the dad, will deal with that. But I bear the name of my father. And if I misrepresent that to this fallen world, I'm accountable to my father. And that's the whole point. So we know Him. We know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Do you know him or do you not know him? Because if you know him, it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And that's where we're headed here in Hebrews chapter 10. That's the next verse we haven't hit yet in verse 31. Do we know him? Then we should be keeping his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments. We look at these guys, these professing Christians, and we ask ourselves, really? Do you know him? Have you come to know him? Are you in the word of God? Are you being renewed in the spirit of your mind? Understand the difference between a saint and a disciple. Are you in the word of God? Are you abiding in the word? Are you growing? Do you know your father? Chapter 5. In verse 20, verse 19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come 
and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's all about knowing Him and it should be more and more and more. Sweeter as the years go by. You know, you think about how well did you know uh, your wife on the day you married her and how well do you know her today? And uh, ideally, and by design, you know her better now. If you don't, that's a, we've got a problem, <laughs> right? We've got to deal with that. Part of the relationship is growing together. Part of the relationship is learning more. And it's the same thing with the Lord. How well did I know the Lord the day I got saved? How well did I know Him? I didn't, what did I know? I knew I was a sinner. I knew that He died on the cross for my sins. I knew that my mother took me to meet the pastor that next Saturday. My mother led me to Christ on a Saturday morning when I was four years, almost five years old. And then the very next, and using verses that the pastor had given her. And so she used the verses he gave her and, and she led me to Christ. And, and, uh, and I got saved on a Saturday in 1973. And then she took me to meet the pastor that next morning. And she introduced me to my new brother. And that was weird. <laughs> Uh, who is this old man? And why is he my brother? And what, what is this all about? I didn't know any of that. And it's scary now because I know I've done the math. <laughs> I know he was born in 1932 and I know how old he was in 1973. And I'm older than that now. I thought he was so much older back then. <laughs> but how well do we know the, the Lord when we get saved? How well do we know him after 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, however many years, okay? We, we do know Him and we're called to know Him and this is the blessing that we, uh, what He's given us so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Not only are we going to know Him forever, we're going to know one another forever. It's going to be such a, such a glory and such a joy you ever read that chapter in Luke where um, rich man and Lazarus, they both die and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom and the rich man goes to Hades on the opposite side. You read that chapter, you know what I'm talking about? And <laughs> at a glance, he calls across and he says, Father Abraham, how does he know that? How does he know who Abraham is? Abraham wearing a name tag? He says, hi, my name is Abraham. <laughs> and Abraham talks to him, he knows his whole life story. He said, in your life you enjoyed your many good things and Lazarus, bad things. Why is it at a glance Abraham knew that rich man's entire life story? Think about it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very profound chapter, I think, in a lot of ways. At a glance and he knew Lazarus's story. And he knew Lazarus's circumstances and why he is now being comforted. And that man had all his regrets. He wanted his brothers to not come to this place. And it's just, it's curious to me how we're going to know one another. Soul to soul. How we're going to know one another. You know, here on earth, in this life, it takes time. In this life, we have varying degrees of intimacy and you can learn another person's soul and it, your spouse is the, is the, is the soul that's, that's knit to your soul and so that's the soul you know the best and then your, your children's soul and, and, and other family members. There, there's also a, there's varying degrees of intimacy. I think uh, that the local church is a, is a marvelous place of intimacy where in soul to soul fellowship we have as we love one another and serve one another and teach one another and pray for one another. All right, and these are the things, and, and, and these are the, the provisions God has made to know one another in this way because it's all a part of knowing Him. What a joy. And so it also makes our severity worse. Okay? And as it says in verse 31, it is terrifying. And if it's not terrifying enough, it's because we haven't processed this deeply enough. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we can start by communicating what this verse doesn't say. Because then if, if we misread it or if we think it's saying what it's not saying, then we might be getting terrified of the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. Again, it's not, this isn't the lake of fire. This isn't loss of salvation. We're not terrified of going to hell when we die. If you're, if you're terrified of that, you're terrified of the wrong thing. Because we're supposed to be terrified. It's not wrong to be terrified of that which is terrifying. I mean, this is how God designed it. It is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. And we are in His hands. But we want to be in His hand of blessing. We don't want to be in His hand of judgment. We want to be walking in the light and fulfilling our priesthood responsibilities as He's designed it because we know Him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so... I don't want to be falling in his hand of corrective judgment. That's what's terrifying. Present discipline from the hand of God is what's, te- is, is what's terrifying. While Jonathan Edwards made quite a point with sinners in the hands of an angry God, that's not the point of this verse. This verse has terror on our part but no anger on God's part. I find that interesting. And um, the contrast on this, I don't know if you've read Jonathan Edwards or not, or read probably the the most brilliant mind ever stand upon this continent. Uh, One of the most brilliant uh, uh, minds ever. And this probably his most famous sermon sinners in the hands of an angry. And the, 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 the role that he had and others in the, in the Great Awakening and in, in the early history of, of our country is, is uh, incalculable. But in any event, this verse is uh, not talking about unbelievers that are going to die and go to hell. This verse is talking about believers who should know better, who know their father and yet defy him in the willful sin. Remember this whole section began in verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth. This whole warning passage is predicated, is, is launched by that, uh, that uh, stipulation there. That we are believers who should know better. We've been taught. The scriptures have been given. We are accountable. And it's terrifying when we are living in defiance of the Scriptures. If it's not, it should be. I think when it's not is an indicator of our hardened hearts. When we act blindfully saying, well, there's no accountability, God doesn't see, I'm getting away with this, I'm not getting away with anything. This verse has terror on our part, but no anger on God's part. He is is not the angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's the living God. That's the adjective. We're the ones that are terrified. He's the one, he's the living God. There's no anger in this verse. He is the living God and we are the living stones who should be presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. Remember? They and their priesthood brought dead sacrifices. Killing it's what made it a sacrifice. (laughs) Until you kill it, it's not a sacrifice. It's just a sheep, right? Kill it, it's a sacrifice. We have the living sacrifice. We are the living sacrifices. Romans 12 says we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Our spiritual service of worship. We are living stones being built up in this temple. We are the priesthood of the body of Christ. Such a thrill. I say this many times, I stole it from Lewis Berry Schaefer. Israel had a priesthood the church is a priesthood. Simple, and yet everything laid out right there. And so um, we should be living stone. We are living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God, uh, but uh, rejected. Remember our Savior? He was the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, rejected by his brethren. 
stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. If you and I are truly living as living stones, then we're going to be a, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense too. As we conduct our lives, as we stand for truth, this world's going to call us homophobes and haters and they're going to have all kinds of issues with what we believe and why. So be it. God has always been the living God. But in the aftermath of Calvary, Jesus Christ is He who died and now lives again. And what I really want to impress, we're going to wrap it up and we have communion today. I really want to impress this. I'm glad we got this far because we're not going to be back in Hebrews for a couple of weeks. But um, God has always been the living God. When it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that's always been the case. And Israel, the Exodus generation, the wilderness generation, I mean, every, every generation, even you know Adam and Eve, he's always been the living God. But now, he's still the living God, but with the recognition that he is Jesus, is he who died and now lives again. So He is eternally the living God that has died for you. And that adds a dimension of, I think, preciousness to the term living God that we have it. Not hard to prove. Uh, Let's see, our time is rapidly... You can find these. Deuteronomy 5.26, the living God, right? These are easy enough. He's always been the living God. This is really why Israel was so different. All the, all the Gentile nations served dead idols. They, had, they served uh, false angel, you know, fallen angels posing as gods. They served these dead idols. They served the living God. And Israel was unique among the Gentile nations in that, in that regard. So Deuteronomy 5.26 uh, for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? <coughs> Israel is a unique people serving the living God. Joshua 3.10 Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite. All those nations, each one of them was greater and mightier than Israel. Each one of them was greater and mightier. All seven of them combined. The living God dispossessed them and gave them their land. Why was uh, David so insistent that Goliath had to fall? 1 Samuel 17. It wasn't because of his size, wasn't because of, it was because he had taunted the armies of the living God. 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? That's what it's about. It's not about his size. It's not about his uh, race. It's not about any of that. All right. Same thing with verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. All right. God has always been the living God, but in the aftermath of Calvary, Jesus Christ is he who died and now lives again. Romans 8:34, 2 Corinthians 5:15, Revelation 1, 17 and 18, also Revelation 2, 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. There's a significance to this. He's always been the living God, but now he's the one who died and rose again on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.15 The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. This is the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. He turns and he sees the vision of the Lord. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He who died and lives again. Finally, the angel of the church of Smyrna write the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the uh, warnings that Scripture gives us. I pray that we would heed the warnings. We know they're not threats to take away our salvation, but they are terrifying threats. They are terrifying warnings that you are the living God. Your son died and rose again to provide for us um, the, the holiness that we are to exhibit, the confidence to enter within the veil, the access, the better hope, everything that Hebrews teaches us, Father, all of that was given because your Son died in our place. And I pray, Father, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, that we might not trample underfoot the Son of God, that we might not regard as unclean the blood of the covenant, that we might not insult the Spirit of grace. And so as we partake of communion today, Father, I pray that, that these elements will take on a new and a deeper significance, that we would have a greater appreciation for the living God that had to die so we could have eternal life. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will uh, have our communion hymn at this time while the Sunday school classes are brought in. Number 572 in the blue hymnal.